All right, will you, you please take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew 12. We are, as I told you last week, we're going to pause our study of the Gospel of Mark to take the next four Sundays of Advent and focus our hearts uh, on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ while preparing for His second. That is what we are looking forward to at this point in redemptive history. Matthew chapter 12, let's read from today's passage beginning at verse number 9 for context, but our primary focus this morning will be on verses 18 through 21. Matthew chapter 12 beginning at 9, verse 9. He went on from there and entered a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. Father, we ask Your blessing upon this reading of Your Word. Lord, take everything that's said this morning, anoint it, use it by the sovereign grace of Your Spirit to penetrate to the deepest part of our hearts, to drive out those things there which are displeasing to you so that we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, in whom we have hope this morning. We ask all this in His name. Amen. Today marks the beginning of the season of Advent, a season in the church calendar, in the church year, that is marked by the four Sundays preceding Christmas Day. Advent is celebrated by Christians all over the world in many different churches, many different denominations as a season to focus our attention on the wonder of the incarnation of Christ, the eternal Son of God wrapped in human flesh, fully God and fully man, who has come to redeem fallen humanity from the curse of sin and death. We just sang about it. 
This is a season to let our hearts linger on the hope that we have in both the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in a manger in Bethlehem and also on His second coming. And friends, hope is something that our world and especially our culture here in America is in desperate need of this year. The U.S. Census Bureau is now saying that one in three Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression. That's about 33% of our population here in America. That's up from the pre-pandemic statistic of one in five, which was about 20%. One doctor at the Massachusetts General Research Institute cites COVID-related factors as the reason for the sharp increase. Trauma from widespread disease, grief over losses of life, fear of getting sick. These are, these are all for straight from his report. Fear of getting sick, unprecedented physical distancing, financial concerns due to job loss or job uncertainty, loss of community, reduced access to caregivers. All of these things have factored into this sharp and significant rise in clinical depression. Fear, sadness, worry, uncertainty have absolutely taken over our lives this year. All while the liquor stores, the abortion clinics, The marijuana dispensaries were considered essential and allowed to remain open during the government lockdowns, but churches were closed. You see, pandemic or not, humanity is defeated. We are dying. We are dead because of sin. Sin's presence in this world was brought here by us through our first parents, and it exists only to punish and to enslave us. Your local therapist might advise you to have a more positive outlook on life. Nevertheless, this is the diagnosis of Scripture. We are dead. And friends, we need to be very clear. Hope will never be found in a bottle of liquor, a bottle of pills, or pop psychology, or any other avenue of worldly relief. The experts, we're told to believe the experts left and right now, although they can't even agree most of the time. The experts out there can diagnose and prescribe all that they want to. But true and lasting relief and hope for us, broken, damaged, dying and dead sinners, is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text from Matthew 12 this morning teaches us about His special calling and character as the promised Savior for all those who recognize their own brokenness and their own misery in sin. So I want us to work through it together Uh, with three main thoughts. And the first is that Jesus is the chosen servant of the Lord. 
Jesus is the chosen servant of the Lord. The, the text of Matthew 12 here, verses 18 through 21, are actually a quotation from Isaiah 42, in which the servant of the Lord was identified as the chosen, the elect nation of Israel. But Matthew reads Isaiah as we should read Isaiah through the lens of Christological fulfillment. We've talked about that before, the scarlet thread connecting the dots. And so Matthew applies the title, Servant of the Lord, to Jesus Christ, who is here yet, by the way, he's in Capernaum here, but he's here yet once again provoking the religious leaders of his day by doing what? By healing a man's hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue. The Pharisees accused Jesus of unlawfully healing on the, on the Sabbath day. But Jesus was more concerned about reaching out to this man in his plight than he was about following their man-made traditions and their legalistic interpretation of the law. And so Matthew sees, he, he, he sees this and he reflects on the compassion of Jesus here in this episode. And then he connects the dots. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he connects the dots of redemptive history to the person and work of Christ as the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Verse 17 makes this very clear. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in Eden and plunged our human race into sin and death, God would have been just to leave us in our misery. Condemned under His wrath for eternity. We need to to get that rooted down in our hearts. That truth has to be foundational for us. God does not owe us anything. We owe Him everything. He could have left us in our misery. He's never been under obligation to save anyone. But in His sovereign freedom, He chose to extend mercy to our lost race and send a Savior. But salvation is of the Lord alone. So He didn't send us a political Savior. He didn't send us a military Savior. He didn't send us a general He didn't even send an angel because none of those can save. And we certainly can't save ourselves. So what did God do? He gave us His choicest servant, His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And let's be clear, church. God didn't perform 
a search in heaven. He didn't go searching through the halls of heaven looking for a volunteer brave enough to come to earth on a mission of salvation. No, friends. The plan of redemption was orchestrated within the triune Godhead from eternity past. There was no selection committee. There was no audition. There was no training mission to be Savior. The Son of God was predestined to come to our world as a man, to live a life of complete and perfect obedience to His Father, and to give His life as an atonement for sin so that all who embrace Him as Lord might be redeemed. 1 Peter 1.20 says this, He indeed, talking about Christ, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus is the Lord's chosen servant. In verse 18, God speaks of him so tenderly as as his beloved with whom his soul is pleased, well pleased. You know, you would recognize these, these words. These are the same words that God the Father spoke over his son, Jesus, at his baptism in Matthew 3 and at his transfiguration in Matthew 17, the exact same words. Let's think about the significance of this for a moment. We are dead in our sin, undeserving of grace. God is under no obligation to move in any redemptive way toward us. Yet it was the eternal plan of God before the very foundation of this world to send not an angel, not a politician, not a military commander, to send His only and beloved Son to save those who had turned their backs on Him in rebellion and sin. Friends, this is love. The Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, in his book entitled The Bruised Reed, says this, In this we may see the sweet love of God to us in that He counts the work of our salvation by Christ His greatest service and in that He will put His only beloved Son to that service. Do you feel the sweet love of God towards you in Advent, in Christmas, in the giving of Jesus Christ to this earth? You should. The salvation of lost humanity was a task to be completed by the only one capable of it. And in the second half of verse 18, God the Father says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. We've heard a lot of talk this year about justice and injustice, haven't we? 
And sadly, what we've seen is sinful man defining justice by his own fallen sense of right and wrong. But biblical justice is the righteous administration of judgment based on God's character and revealed will. It is not arbitrary. It is not unfair. It is not skewed toward any particular demographic or skin color. That is biblical justice. Matthew says at the end of verse 18 that justice will be proclaimed to the Gentiles. And what does that mean? That means to the ends of the earth. It is, it is a global proclamation of justice. The justice of Christ will be for everyone, not just the Jews, for everyone. And it will be marked by a humble, quiet, and calm proclamation of the truth. Look, look at verse 19 with me, please. This is, a, this is crucial. He who, the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ, Jesus He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. The general expectation of the Messiah in the first century would be that that He would conquer Israel's enemies. And so therefore they were expecting a political Messiah who would deliver a military victory from Roman oppression. But Jesus was not that kind of Messiah, was He? He would not argue in the streets or force His will on people. He would not organize riots or marches or peaceful protests. He would not be the one in the streets shouting, no justice, no peace. His demeanor would be gentle and calm. And this brings us to our second main thought from this text, that Jesus is the compassionate Savior of the broken. He is the compassionate Savior of the broken. Look down to verse 20. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. Reeds are are tall grasses. And they were, they were commonplace in first century Israel. They were abundant near marshes and riverbanks. And they were not hard to come by. So a bruised or a damaged reed, you know, the tall piece of grass gets broken over or whatever, they would simply be discarded for a new one. Just throw it away. Likewise, a smoldering wick was good for nothing but smoke. And sometimes we, we use the fire pit out in the backyard and uh, depending on the type of wood we use or the, the amount of moisture in the wood, it can be a nice, bright, warm, hot fire. It can just be a smoky mess. And a smoldering wick was no good for anything. No one would have taken the time to repair it so that it would have so that it would burn properly and emit light 
like it should have, it would have simply been thrown away, replaced, like the bruised reed. Friends, these are images of broken, downtrodden, and oppressed people. Not, not those who make politically motivated claims, all right, of systemic injustice and all of that, but the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks are those broken and oppressed by sin. Now let's be clear. I don't want to be misunderstood. Systemic injustice and oppression has existed. And it continues to exist in our world. And there are many today who only read this text through those kinds of social justice lenses. But friends, the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks here are those who recognize the misery of their sin. Sin is the root of abuse and oppression and injustice. Not the color of your skin or the amount of privilege that you might have from the family that you were born into. Sin is the root of it. And freedom from the slavery of sin through the gospel of Jesus is the only answer to injustice. Not marches, not riots, not politics or presidents. We need a Savior from the misery of our sin. The bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks are those who have lived under the dominion of sin internally in their own hearts, in our own hearts, and externally through the injustices brought upon us by others. They are those who are tired of the heavy burden of sin and its devastating effects on their lives those who are weary of the suffering and the afflictions of living in this sin-raped, fallen world. The bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks are those who are weak in faith. Those who wonder how many more dark turns of providence they can take. They are those who mourn their sinful inclinations and their lack of transformation and conformity to the holiness of Christ. You ever feel like that, church? Oh, brothers and sisters, we should feel, we should mourn our lack of holiness. To cry out for purity, for sanctification. We should mourn our weakness. We should mourn our doubts. But instead, we just embrace it and pretend like this is normal for us to to have doubting hearts, to have fearful hearts when the single most repeated command in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. Over 300 occurrences from cover to cover in the Bible. And we just embrace it. You feel like a bruised reed this morning and a smoldering wick whose light is about to go out. It is to you. 
It is to people who feel this way and who understand the misery that sin has brought to this world and to our lives that Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know the reason why we're out there pursuing all these these foolish worldly pursuits in our lives? is Because we cannot find rest for our souls. You know the reason people riot in the streets? They're looking for something to give them rest from the internal war inside. But they're not going to find it by throwing a Molotov cocktail through the target glass window. They'll find it at the cross of Calvary's Hill. And they'll find a Savior who will not trample on their smoldering wick. He won't discard their bruised reed and say, I'm done with you. It's time to start over with someone else. He will not put our last little bit of light out, but invites us to trade our burdens for His joy, to trade the bondage of our besetting sins for the sweet freedom of His grace. The Lord's chosen servant is compassionate and gentle. He aggravates the religious folk by calling tax collectors to be among His disciples, by eating and drinking with sinners, and by healing on the Sabbath day. He comes into the mess that we've made of our lives and makes us a testimony of His transforming grace. And to those of you this morning whom the Lord has put on the dark path of suffering and affliction. Hear this. Jesus has walked that path Himself. And He can identify with every pain, with every anguish that we could ever conceivably experience. And He is compassionate Toward us. Satan, on the other hand, despises the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He abuses the broken. He punishes the weak. He enslaves us to sin. He comes only, Jesus said in John 10, to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come, Christ said, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What about us this morning? Do we despair of our brokenness in sin or in our self-righteousness? Are we so distraught over our lack of personal holiness that we would cry out to God, Lord, make me like Christ or take me out of this world? Is that how serious we are about pursuing Christ this morning. Can we say with Paul, to live is Christ? We can say to die is gain. 
but can we say to live is Christ. You see, when we see in ourselves, as Paul did, the wretchedness of sin, then we can become the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks that Jesus has come to save. And He will fan our dying flames into bright lights that witness to His power and gospel and grace. He is a glorious Savior, and He invites us this morning to find refuge for our weary hearts in Him. The end of verse 19 says, Until He brings justice to victory. Second time in this passage that justice has been mentioned. This time in relation to the perseverance and the patience of the chosen servant. He will persevere until the fullness of His kingdom is realized. Until justice is realized. His, his incarnation, His first advent is the arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth, but not yet the fullness. And the justice of His kingdom that we sang about in joy to the world this morning will persist until the full victory is realized at the renewal of all things. Friends, this is why we feel the tension between what Scripture promises about the kingdom of God and the reality of the world as it is. We feel that tension. This is the already, not yet. And friends, this is where you and I and actually every other believer from the first advent of Christ until His second, this is where we live, in the already but not yet. We already have freedom from sin, but not yet the fullness of that freedom because we still sin. We already have the promise of justice in this fallen world. When you look around and you see how everything is so messed up, and you crave, you can't wait for the day, when as we said this morning from that text that He will strike this earth with the rod of His mouth. We long for that day. But it is not here yet. Because injustice still occurs. But one day, all that Christ has promised and brought to us in His first advent will be ultimately and fully experienced in His second, when He finally and ultimately destroys Satan, sin, and death. And He makes all things new. So this leads us to our our final main thought this morning. That Jesus is the certain hope of all the world. You've come here this morning looking for hope. Verse 21, And in His name, the Gentiles, that's you and me, in His name, the Gentiles will hope. We sing every Christmas in the carol, O Holy Night, You sing, I love this line, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Are you weary this morning of this world? 
the Lord's chosen servant is not only the hope of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, but He is the hope of all the world. That's what the, that's what the word Gentiles here indicates. Salvation is not just for the elect nation of Israel, the chosen people. It is now for a new elect nation, the church, a chosen people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, a salvation for all the world without distinction. Psalm 98.9, the text from which Isaac Watts wrote this hymn we sang this morning, Joy to the World, it says this, verse 9 of Psalm 98, He comes to judge the earth and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, get this, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth, it's the already, and forevermore, that's the not yet. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And friends, this is our hope. These things that we, these scripture readings that we, that we, that we recite and we know so well because we do every, every year at, at Christmas or Advent, they're not just put in the scripture so that we can have something that makes us feel good at Christmas time. The promises, their truths, their realities that will fully one day be realized, they are our certain hope. John Lennon, by contrast, the founder of the 60s rock band, The Beatles, in his depressingly humanistic song, Imagine, wrote about a different kind of hope. A hope for a world without hunger, greed, and violence. And, And throughout the song, throughout the lyrics, Lennon implies that religion, that religious belief is the cause of all these evils. But friends, John Lennon's world will never exist because there is no hope for peace apart from Christ, the chosen servant of the Lord. So let me ask you, where are we putting our hope this morning? You know, we've just come through a very difficult election season. <clears throat> I'm not actually sure that we're completely through with it yet. I, but it, regardless, do we really think that a politician or a political party can bring lasting stability and peace to our sin-ravaged culture, nation, and world? Do we really believe that? Is that where we are putting our hope? Now, I know that we would never admit it such. We would never say that we put our hope in that. 
but are we functionally putting our hope there? Or maybe we're putting our hope in our spouse, the happiness that he or she brings us, putting our hope in a happy marriage or happy family or our children turning out right, or perhaps it's a 401K or some other worldly refuge. Friends, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks need a more sure and certain hope than that kind of stuff. Because the pressures of this life will snuff our light We need a Savior. One whose righteousness transcends our own feeble attempts at saving ourselves and fixing our world. And let's be honest, that's what we're trying to do through political means and cultural transformation, the religious right, the moral majority and all that. We can't fix our world. We need a chosen servant the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who can and will fix our world. So friends, I want to entreat you this morning. Look on Christ for true hope. Cast yourself. Admit the misery of our sin. And let's throw ourselves at the feet of the cross and throw ourselves on His mercy and find there a compassionate and gentle, and calm, and meek Savior who will not crush the bruised reed or extinguish the smoldering wick, but will save all and anyone who will come to Him devoid of their own righteousness and trust only in Him. Let's do that today, friends. Let's pray.